Well, we're a couple of weeks into a new calendar year and God is calling each of us into freshened levels of purity and devotion in our relationship with him. Now, of course, that's always a good idea. It's a good idea at any time. But in our case, I think it's an even better idea because as I was thinking on that and thinking about where we are as a fellowship, I thought back to last August at the start of the 24th year of our fellowship and God opened up uh, an opportunity for each of us to experience double portion increase before we get to August of 2023. We're four months into that journey. And to help position us for that, Isaiah 53 laid out five clear action steps, enlarge, stretch out, don't hold back, lengthen, and strengthen. Each of those provoke changes in our perceptions as well as in our faith. And so let's just keep asking God for the revelation and the courage that we need to take new steps into the increase that God has in his heart for all of us in the days and the weeks and the months to come. I've been talking the last couple of weeks about perfecting holiness. And I think perfecting holiness is another opportunity we have to partner with God for growth and increase. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 calls us to purify, to cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness. Doing the work and living a consecrated life set apart for God's purpose out of reverence for God. This perfecting means to further fulfill and it highlights the being made perfect process that comes with continuing to work out our salvation. The Greek word uh, that's most commonly translated holy means to set apart for a specific purpose or use. Holy can also mean to be physically pure and morally blameless, which sounds a whole lot like clean hands and a pure heart and living like that. Holy can also include the idea of someone or something that's filthy dirty getting washed and set apart for something brand new, clean, and useful. Perfecting holiness. Perfecting holiness. The word Paul used for holiness is a derivative of holy that's only used three times in all of the New Testament. And this holiness describes the quality of sacredness. Sacredness speaks to being set apart with reverential uh, devotion and dedication to God. I think so many times when we hear the word holy or holiness, we first think about actions or we think about uh, things that need to be avoided. But interestingly, uh, as I was working on this word this week and digging into this some more, this particular Greek word for holiness is a noun, not a verb. It's a noun, not a verb. Nouns refer to a person, place, or thing, and that's the essence of God's plan for each of us related to perfecting holiness. God wants holiness to be who we are. Who we are as a person. Who we are because we're a dwelling place for his holiness inside of us. And so thoroughly who we are, that holiness gets repeatedly reflected in the things that are revealed by our character and by how we show up in the world every day. This kind of manifest holiness is about the quality of being holy rather than about becoming holy. Perfecting holiness is about the quality of being holy rather than about becoming holy. So that means manifest holiness is not something we're working towards. Instead, it's a new identity we should be working from. Manifest holiness is not something that we should be working towards, hoping we can get there. This perfecting holiness, this manifest holiness, is the place, the identity 
which we should be working from. When we surrender the control of our lives to Jesus and get born again, we become a new creation in Christ. In an instant, we're spiritually set apart and made holy. Set apart as one belonging to God and also spiritually separated from what belongs to the world. So perfecting holiness is basically about learning how to effectively live out our salvation. It's about learning to walk in all that is ours because the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And following Jesus' example, perfecting this kind of manifest holiness is about walking in a depth of constant relationship with the Heavenly Father that's rooted in not my will, but yours be done as a daily part of our surrender to the Lord. Last weekend, I suggested that I think we'll make better progress perfecting holiness as we choose to stay in the river. There is a river that flows from the throne of God. And wherever that river flows, it brings new, fresh life. In John 7, Jesus stood up and shouted to the crowds, all you thirsty ones, come to me. Come to me and drink. Believe in me, cleave to me, trust in me, rely on me so that springs and rivers of living water will burst and come forth from within you, continuously flowing from your inmost being, just as the scripture says. We looked at the vision of the river that Ezekiel saw. It's recorded in chapter 47 of his book. And he was led from the banks of the river into the water. And that living lead part is an important spiritual discipline. We've all been invited into an active, ongoing relationship with God. Not into an autopilot religion where we do what seems best to us for God. Rather than trying to follow rules and a formula, living lead involves simple obedience. Just doing what we're told or doing the things that we feel led to do. And without the leading of the Holy Spirit, we'll quickly find ourselves off course. And we'll also miss out on some things that God wants us to be in on. Ezekiel was led from the banks of the river into the water. And he went from ankle deep to knee deep to waist deep and finally into a place where he could swim. The deeper in the water we go, the more we surrender our sense of control and the more we're moved and influenced by the flow of God. Now, as with rivers in the natural, the flow can sometimes be invisible. The, the water may be moving, but it might not look like it. One of the things Cindy and I enjoy doing is going to uh, the, the river trail and walking it. And uh, we'll walk a while and then we'll get to that G Street Bridge. And there's uh, some benches there that we like to just sit on. It's a beautiful look down the river. It's interesting sitting there sometimes, though, when you look right over the bridge, it doesn't look like the water's moving. Everything is just so still. You can just see so clearly. But that water's moving. It's moving away from, it's moving downhill, but you can't always see. Now, you look a little further, lift your eyes, then you can see the little ripples and you can see that it's moving. One of the crazy things, if you're eating at Chili's or at Billy Jean's and the normal southerly breeze is blowing, the waves are moving this way, but that river's going that way. You know, so you can't always tell. And that's the way it is in the flow of God. Sometimes it seems like it's going this way, but it's going this way. And so it's interesting. Sometimes it doesn't look like there's anything happening, but no, there's a flow happening. The river is flowing. Sometimes it's clear and obvious where it's flowing. Sometimes the river gets flowing strong enough that there's even rapids that you've got to work your way through. And learning to consistently move with and in the flow of God comes with time spent in the river. One of the best ways to stay in the river is to regularly surround ourselves with worship. I, I just want to say again, I've said it many times, but what we listen to matters. And regularly soaking in worship is such a good spiritual practice. 
in contrast to what happens in us when we're listening to or reading talk radio or sports news or just the regular news and all the kind of, in contrast to what happens when you do that. Because most of the time when you read that stuff, it's like, oh, or oh, all that. When we invest and spend time in worship, practicing worship, there's something that happens inside of us that's good. Uh, when we spend time in worship, uh, it triggers what my dad used to call attitudes of gratitude, which is much better to trigger than stinking thinking. And, and worship stirs that up inside of us. As we worship the Lord, sometimes it's amazing because it's just like you feel the goosebumps, you feel his presence. It's amazing. It's oh, so precious. It's like just getting the car and a song comes on. It's like, wow, sometimes uh, when I'm heading home from work or, or after a service and I get in the car and Caleb's on the radio and then the song that comes on, sometimes the song that comes on, it's just like, oh my goodness, that's what I need. And I only live a couple of minutes away from church, but I'll pull into my garage and sit there and wait till the song finishes, just letting the whole song wash over me because it's just so powerful. Now, sometimes when I turn on the radio, it's the DJ talking and I'd rather not listen to them talk. I want to hear the music, but uh, that's an old, uh, I, I, and when I was in college, I had a Christian radio show that I, I ran at Baylor and I told the guys and gals that were working for me, listen, people are tuning in to listen to the music, not to us. And if the music you're playing isn't worth listening to, good enough to listen to, find better music, but still don't take the time talking, you know? So that's still one of my old pet peeves from the past. Anyway, rabbit trail. But sometimes you get that song. Sometimes we're in here worshiping and the presence of the Lord just sweeps. Other than we just had a little wave right there at the end, just saying his name and proclaiming his name. Sometimes it happens that way. Now, some of, the people, some of us in the room felt that happen. Others have been here didn't feel anything. Why is everybody shouting? What's going on with all that? And just not picking it up. It, I, th I think we all love it when you feel the presence of the Lord. But listen, worship is not about our feelings. One of the accusations that can come against uh, uh, spirit-led worship is it's just feelings. It's just feelings. And here's what I want to say. If the only time you worship is when you feel it, then your feelings are leading the way and that's a mistake. But instead, worship is like he's worthy to be worshiped whether I'm feeling it or not. Whether I'm feeling, whether I'm getting the goosebumps, whether I'm feeling that he is worthy of our worship. And when we worship him, we're giving him the praise, we're giving him the glory and the honor that he's due. And worship has a way of focusing the attentions and the affections of our heart and mind on God. Because God inhabits our praises, something else happens. Worship actually draws us closer to God by spiritually marinating us in and with his presence. And as it does with meat, marinating has a tenderizing effect on us. And far too often, I think we underestimate the value and the benefits of staying saturated in and with God's presence. Now, I don't know about your house, but right now in my house, the never-ending task that's in front of me is getting the leaves picked up. And I got me a new leaf uh, mulcher and got it, finally got it on Monday. I was so excited. It's been about four hours out there and Whew, it looked good back there in the backyard. There weren't leaves. I got them. I mowed, I mulched. I had it all done and got up on Tuesday morning. You couldn't tell I'd even been in the backyard because that's a big tree back there. Still lots of leaves that are, uh, that are uh, coming down. But as I was working on getting those leaves up in the yard, one of the things I noticed is that I've got some weeds that are also growing in my yard that were kind of hiding under those leaves. And I know that eventually I've got to get those uh, weeds up out of the ground. And um, what I've found after years of that is it's much easier to get weeds out of the ground when the ground is wet than when the ground is dry. Now, you can, you can get weeds out of the ground when the ground is dry, but more often than not, you leave the root of the, of the weed in the ground, and so you're looking good, like that weed is gone, but that weed's coming back because the root is still there in the ground. 
but if you go pull the weeds on the days when the ground is wet, and we've got a sprinkler system so I can do it, but actually it's better after one of those long soaking rains, and you just go get them, you just pop them right out, and they come out, roots and all, and that thing is gone. Such a good feeling. Ooh, out, out, out. And uh, whenever I'm doing that in the natural, I'm like, yeah, do it in the spirit too. Coming all the way out. Those roots all the way coming out. Well, I was using this illustration several years ago in a sermon, and a guy came up to me and said, okay, I get it. I get what you're talking about. But he said, in my life, I've got trees. I don't have weeds. I got trees that need to come out of my life. Well, what's so funny is as soon as he said it, I mean, instantly in my spirit, I flashed back to a couple of years, my uh, sophomore, junior year of high school, where we lived in New Orleans. And uh, in New Orleans during that time, there were some times when it rained so many days in a row that massive trees just fell over out of the ground. The ground was so saturated, those trees could not be held up anymore. They'd been there a long time. Hundred-year-old trees just falling over. Well, the same thing is happening out in California right now. Uh, our, our oldest son, uh, daughter, and three grandkids out there sending us pictures from Sacramento where hundred-plus-year-old trees, massive trees, just falling over. Now people are starting to cut down some of those trees before they fall because it's dangerous when they fall. So uh, what I want to say is that here's the point. No matter what unwanted weed or tree is growing in our lives, the more saturated that we are in the presence of God, the easier it is for that thing to be uprooted. The bigger it is, the more saturated we need to be. Some things take longer than others. Stay in the river. Keep soaking. Our God makes all things beautiful in their time. Now, when I used to kayak, I found that it was possible to paddle upstream against the current. But I also found that I so much more enjoyed going downstream with the current. In fact, some of my favorite times ever was after some big rains and the river was almost at kind of a flood stage. Because when rivers at flood stage, there's no place where you have to ever get out and walk your kayak. And there are also no low water bridge crossings you got to get out because the water's going over those. And those become little waterfalls. I mean, it is so much more fun to be moving with the current rather than going against the current. Which leads me to another part of perfecting holiness. And that is no turning back. No turning back. In Luke 9, Jesus encountered three people with a desire and an invitation to follow him. And each of them had a ready excuse. The last one said, I will follow you, but first let me go back. And Jesus said, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That Greek word for look back is a, means a voluntary observation. So it's a willful choice to keep looking backwards. Part of perfecting holiness involves learning to keep our eyes on the prize. Philippians 3, Paul wrote, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, most of the time when that verse is quoted, that's where they stop. But I think the next verse is so powerful and should always be included. All of us who are mature should have this same passion It takes such a view of things. Forgetting what's behind, straining, that's the way the mature think. That's, I'm pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul's original readers would have understood forgetting what behind is neglecting, no longer caring for the things that are in our past. But the crazy thing about the past is it frequently wants our attention. 
We've all got a past. Look at everybody, look at your neighbor. They got a past. You got a past too. And not learning, and not learning the lessons from our past is one of the quickest ways to keep repeating the same errors that you've made in the, in the, in the past. But I think we need to let our history be our history. I've been in church my whole life, heard lots and lots of testimonies. And I think a lot of times testimonies can become kind of like those old fishing stories. The more they're told and retold, the bigger they get. The worse you get. And then, and then as that starts happening, often it sparks something to somebody, oh yeah, well I was better than that. And now you got the, can you top this going on? I mean, the whole testimony thing can get a little bit weird when we're talking about our past. When we're talking about our past. I don't think it's good to spend too much time talking about the past in our testimonies. Our BC, our before Christ life, is not as interesting, significant, or relevant to our story as what's happened since we've met Jesus and what he's doing in our lives now. I love the line from The Chosen. I used to be one way and now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. Also, our history needs to stay in the past. Uh, saying, I don't wanna ever be like that again may sound like a good idea, but in reality, the more we say it, the more likely we are to find ourselves drawn right back to it because we all have a tendency to become the things that we spend the most time looking at and thinking about. It's better to tell yourself rather than, I don't wanna keep doing it, I wanna press on toward the goal. I wanna take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I wanna lay hold of those things that are in God's heart for me to do. Tell yourself that rather than what you don't wanna be, tell yourself what you wanna be. And that pressing on means to make a run for it in pursuit of it and to catch it. And don't let anyone else or our own selves use our history against us. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Giving room to self-condemnation. And oftentimes once we give room to self-condemnation, we start wallowing in it. It's weird how we can kind of enjoy that place. But it's a trap because it's actively practicing looking back. And we actively practice looking back. Pretty soon we find ourselves turning back. And all of that is an insult to the price that Jesus paid for us to be able to live free. Our past history will only be used against us as we keep living in the errors of the past. Our past history will only be used against us as we keep living in the errors of the past. Galatians 5, 1, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be yoked again to that bondage of slavery. One morning when Jesus was in the temple courts at dawn, a hard-hearted group of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees dragged a woman with them to Jesus' presence. They said they'd caught this woman in the act of adultery. Don't know where the guy was, but they had the lady. And they came to Jesus and they were demanding, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? They were trying to, to trap Jesus and put him in a test. Well, he wasn't going to get him that easy. But what Jesus did is he just bent down. And he started writing in the sand. We're not told what he started writing. Some people said he was writing their sins in the sand. I don't know. Just as he was writing in the sand. And then he looked up and because they're, they're still saying, what do you think we should do? What do you? And he said, oh, hey, tell you what. The one of you that doesn't have any sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Amen. And then he went back down. And he started writing in the sand again. Well, when he started writing the second time, 
something amazing happened to that crowd. From oldest to youngest, they started backing away. And so it ended up being just Jesus and the woman standing there. And Jesus looked at her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? Are there, are there none that accuse you? And I think much to her surprise, she looked up and there was no one there, but just her and Jesus. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin, sin no more, sin no more. What's fascinating about this story, it's one of my favorites, and I hope they do it in The Chosen because I think it'd be so good to see it, uh, see the way they would capture it. But this level of forgiveness is so controversial and offensive to the religiosity of many Bible translators that a lot of them left this story out of the Bible. In fact, in your Bible, most of the time you read that passage, there'll be a little footnote at the bottom that says, many manuscripts didn't have this in it. I'm so glad it's in there. So true to the heart of God. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't giving license to immorality. Jesus was setting a woman free to live a new life. And the next thing Jesus said that morning emphasized this main point. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Go and sin no more. None of us can afford to keep walking around in the shadows. The shadows are not our friend. They are not a safe place. We are created to walk in the light with God and with each other. To stay in the shadows, it's a mistake. To stay in the light, we need to take Jesus' word seriously about denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and pursuing him. That pursuit is part of perfecting holiness. It's part of being a follower and a disciple of Jesus. We really need to keep our eyes fixed on him and our steps moving forward with him. But unfortunately, turning back is always an option. But listen, the past is not there anymore. It's not there. Turning back into our past doesn't ever return us to where we were before. After we give our lives to Jesus, turning back takes us to a place that is worse than we were before. Because now we've tasted, seen, and experienced, and then turned away from the light. In our heart, we know the truth. In our heart, we know the way, even though our mind and body may be leading us off in a different direction. And that is a miserable place to live. If we repent, Jesus can and will still save and redeem us in the end. But only as one escaping through the flames, according to 1 Corinthians 3. Speaking of escaping through the flames, one time when Jesus was teaching about the coming kingdom of God, he said, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Lot and his wife and two daughters had separated themselves from his uncle Abraham. Abraham let Lot pick the way to go and Lot chose what appeared to be the better land. And eventually Lot and his family settled in Sodom. But as time passed, things in that region got so out of hand and so openly immoral that God decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah by raining down burning sulfur on them. Before it happened, God sent two angels to rescue Lot and his family. In the second letter, Peter recounted the story this way. God reduced to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, condemning them to ruin and destruction. God appointed them to be examples as to what is coming to the ungodly. Yet he rescued a righteous man, Lot, suffering the indignity of the unbridled lusts of the lawless. 
For righteous Lot lived among them day after day, distressed in his righteous soul by the rebellious deeds he saw and heard. If the Lord rescued Lot, he knows how to continually rescue the godly from their trials. As the angels literally grasped the hands of Lot, his wife, and his daughters, and led them out of town, they gave him this final instruction. Don't look back. And don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. Unfortunately, Lot's wife looked back. And her look back was more than just a quick glance over her shoulder. That word, look back, is it reveals a longing. She looked back with longing. At the very least, it revealed a reluctance to leave. At the most, it was actually a desire to return, even as the whole area was being destroyed by fire. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird how sometimes we know that about the past, but there's still this something in us that's pulling us back that way. Lot's wife's consequence was instant and severe. She became a pillar of salt. In a beautiful passage in Romans 8, some profound questions are asked and answered. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, not any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, last Tuesday I was talking with Brent in the office and I was talking to him about this message that I was working on, No Turning Back. And Brent pointed out one thing that's not included on Paul's list in Romans 8. The past. It says neither present nor future, but the past is not on that list. And in light of all the things that cannot separate us from the love of God, the absence of the past from the list should set off alarms within us. The only reason the past can separate us from God's love is because we let it. We let it when we choose to turn back to it. Our divided loyalties give it power to pull us away from the feelings of God's love. Continuing to feed an attachment to our old past life is not healthy. It's also not neutral behavior. We empower the lies that we believe and act on. Here's good news. God loves redemption. He loves reconciliation. He loves atonement. God loves new beginnings. And his mercy triumphs over judgment. We're not sinners in the hand of an angry God. We're much loved sons and daughters in the hands of the most high God. How we see ourselves and how we see God matters. It's our misperceptions of him and his ways that make us susceptible to turning back in times and situations when we should be leaning into and pressing in with God. Remember singing the old chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. So many times sung that in the past. Three verses, I've decided to follow Jesus. Second verse, the cross before me, the world behind me. Third verse, though none go with me, still I will follow. And every time the chorus, no turning back, no turning back. In Ephesians 3 and 4 in the Message Bible, it says, God can do anything, you know, far more 
than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working through his spirit deeply and gently within us. In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts. That's how perfecting holiness takes place within us. And that's also how we can live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. The passion says, I plead with you to walk holy. I plead with you to walk holy in a way given you in your divine calling. Perfecting manifest holiness is not about something we're working towards. Instead, it's a new identity that we can be living in and working from now. To that end, may the Lord continue to strengthen and confirm and establish in us our true identity. And may we have clean hands and pure hearts so that we can keep perfecting the holiness that he has placed in us with his very presence, the Holy Spirit. By his grace, let's keep throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles so that for his name's sake and his glory, each of us can keep pressing on to take hold of all that Jesus has taken hold of us to be and to do. Let's stand together. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. It really is an amazing thing that people like us, knowing where we've come from, where we've been, things that have happened to us, things we've done, can be holy in your sight. And can live right now our lives from that place of holiness. Thank you for loving us enough to send your spirit to dwell inside of us. Amazing. I mean, Jesus, it was amazing what you came and did. Father, it was amazing that you loved us enough to send Jesus. Jesus, amazing what you did and all that you paid for us, a price we could never pay. But you said it's better that you go to the Father so the spirit would be with us. We're living in the better days because we're living in the time when the spirit has been sent to dwell inside our hearts. Lord, I pray for a greater and greater communing within each of us with those things that are on the Holy Spirit's heart, the way he sees, the way he thinks, the way he acts, that we just find ourselves more and more there, that you just continue to saturate and marinate us in your presence. Lord, stir up a fresh love for worship in our hearts. Help us just to find ourselves in the morning, in the afternoon, at night, even during the middle of the night, just worshiping and praising and giving you glory. You are worthy to be honored and worshiped and glorified like that. Lord, we want to be some of the people on the planet who are perfecting this holiness that's been placed in us. You deserve to have some people living that way. Let us be some of those. And we thank you for that privilege and that opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>